World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In the Sahel, a vast swath of land that stretches across the African continent, there's a worrying trend. Jihadists of several stripes are growing in number and in influence. We tag along with an international training exercise aimed at preparing African forces to contain the threat. And you might think that the public's interest in the world's changing climate has been on a steady rise. You'd be wrong. A dive into data about online searches reveals that climate concern comes and goes. First up, though. Over the past six months, a pessimistic picture of the world economy has been emerging. Speaking at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce last week, Christine Lagarde, the head of the International Monetary Fund, issued a warning. The global economy is at a delicate moment. Only two years ago, 75% of the global economy experienced an upswing. So it was a synchronized growth acceleration. For this year, we expect not 75, but 70% of the global economy to experience a slowdown in growth. Exactly the opposite of what we had. The IMF later today will be publishing its forecast for the year. Simon Cox is our emerging markets editor, based in Hong Kong. We already know a little bit about it from a speech Christine Lagarde gave. She pointed out that they'll be cutting their forecast. They had expected back in January the world economy to grow by about 3.5% this year. So it sounds like they're going to shave some off that forecast. However, she did emphasise that the IMF does not expect a recession this year. So it's a slowdown and one that should bottom out by about mid-year in their view. And why are we seeing this slowdown? So the slowdown is quite broadly based. Lagarde pointed out that a whole variety of countries have slowed down from last year. China has been trying to slow the growth of credit for some time now. There's also been, of course, this trade war, trade tensions between China and America that have damaged sentiment more broadly. Earlier in 2018, we saw uh, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, which caused a lot of problems for a whole variety of emerging economies. And the Eurozone just seems perennially weak takes very little, it seems, to slow its momentum. So all of these things happening together have added up to a slightly gloomier outlook than we had perhaps a year ago. And and is any one of those factors dominant in the slowdown? So the trade war has attracted most of the headlines. I think the Fed's raising interest rates and China's efforts to curb leverage are probably more important. Although it has to be said, the trade war has inflicted greater damage on sentiment than I would have expected. It's not so much the practical, concrete effect of the tariffs. It's more this notion that two of the world's biggest economies can't see eye to eye and are no longer working in concert to try and keep the world economy going. And and with this downturn then in prospect. What can policymakers around the world do to to get ready? 
Policymakers have already taken some measures, and most importantly, the Fed has signalled that it won't be raising interest rates again anytime soon. I think that pause in interest rates has been quite broadly welcomed by financial markets, and I think it came just in time, perhaps a little bit too late. And also China has also turned its attention away from curbing leverage towards shoring up growth. And in the past, China has been quite effective in reviving demand when it decides to. So those are both measures that policymakers have already taken. And then looking more broadly, we'd always very much welcome Germany splurging a bit. Why would that be such a singularly helpful factor? Germany runs quite tight public finances. It's obviously the biggest economy in the Eurozone. It's surrounded by much weaker economies that would benefit greatly from the spillovers of higher German spending. So the one economy that's really in a position to spend more refuses to, and that leaves its neighbours who aren't really in a position to spend more having to do so to try and prop up demand in their own economies. So the Eurozone as a whole sort of exports demand weakness to the rest of the world when it really should be pulling its weight. So you mentioned one of the big factors here is the Fed sort of pausing in its rate increases. Is there a case for a cut? I think possibly. One of the perennial worries about this recovery is that central banks have not yet been able to quote-unquote normalise monetary policy. That is, they haven't been able to raise interest rates to what historically would have been more normal levels. That matters in particular if there's a downturn, because in past recessions, central banks have had to cut interest rates really quite severely in order to offset the recessionary impulses. And they simply don't have room to do that anymore. Now, the best insurance policy against having to cut heavily is to cut a little early. And so uh, there is perhaps a case for the Fed to cut, even if that results in a monetary policy that's a little bit too easy. The damage that would do is very little in comparison with the damage of cutting too late. That is, uh, the US might overheat a little bit, might have a little bit above target inflation, something that really would concern nobody very much at all. So there is perhaps a case for the Fed to be preemptive. The only nuance is that if the Fed now did that, it would be seen as a bit of a sign of panic because they seem to be rather set against doing that unless they absolutely have to. So, Simon, the the worry with growth forecasts that look like this one will is that we're headed for kind of another global recession. How do you see things playing out this time? Give us us cause for optimism. (laughs) So there are a few uh, early signs that growth has bottomed out, actually. And the latest number from China wasn't too bad. German industrial production was okay. The US labor market still looks reasonably robust, although earnings growth has been a bit disappointing. So we have a number of lags to deal with from the data. We're just getting numbers for March now. There's also the lag in the IMF's own processes, right? So it'll have prepared this report using data that might now be several weeks old. And as Christine Lagarde said in her speech, the economic weather is very unsettled. It's changeable. And so it's possible, let's hope, that the slowdown has already finished and that we're seeing the first signs of a stabilization, perhaps even a modest uptick in growth. So as you, as you say, things are unsettled. If, if things are actually on the up and perhaps we haven't, you know, crunched the numbers yet for how much it's on the up, what might threaten that? Oh, there are a whole variety of things that could still destabilize growth. We've never really been able to get back to a fully healthy economy that's growing at its full potential without a lot of help from monetary policy. So you can think of, I don't know, the disruption from Brexit would obviously be an obvious danger sign. Also a renewal of trade tensions. It's remarkable how optimistic financial markets are about a deal between China and Trump. And yet we've been hearing that there's a deal imminent for quite a long while now without it actually happening. So there are a number of risks. Years ago, Christine Lagarde actually coined this phrase, the new mediocre 
It was her take on the more common phrase, the new normal. And her point was that you know, global growth was not as awful as it had been, but it was still pretty disappointing by historical standards, looking back over 10 or 20 years. And I think that's where we're at. You know, the good is never that good. Hopefully the bad won't be awful. We're really stuck in this new mediocre. Right, somewhere between cautious optimism and get used to it. That's right. Simon, thanks very much for your time. It's my pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Islamic State may have been expelled from its last outpost in Syria, but the global jihadist threat is gaining ground in Africa. In the continent-wide Sahel region, south of the Sahara Desert, the security situation is deteriorating fast. Militant Islamist groups in Mali are moving further south into Burkina Faso. Meanwhile, in northern Nigeria, Boko Haram and Islamic State's West Africa province are extending their control. Our Africa editor, Jonathan Rosenthal, has been reporting on international efforts to counter the threat. I've just come back after uh, spending a few days in Burkina Faso in West Africa, where I was with US, British, and other Western forces who were going out there and training African partner forces in this annual exercise, Flintlock, they call it, where about 2,000 special forces soldiers come together and learn about fighting jihadists. Now, this is happening against a backdrop of a really rapidly deteriorating security situation in the Sahel. Since 2012, when Mali basically imploded and you had jihadists taking over a big chunk of the country, you've had these jihadist groups spreading out. And what's particularly alarming about Burkina Faso, where the exercises took place, is that a few years ago, it was basically peaceful. And it is now facing major battles on several of its borders. When you were there, I mean, tell me what it was like being embedded with these soldiers. It was really interesting to see this happening. I went out with a group of Nigerian soldiers. This particular unit had gone through about 20 to 25 weeks of specialist training with the British. And what I saw them doing was a cycle of preparing for and then conducting a simulated attack on an insurgent base camp. So we went out into the bush. We kind of crept along through this ravine. You got 10 minutes. Consolidate all the enemy dead, get all their weapons. Get I saw their officers briefing them and preparing the men for this attack. And we then followed them in where they charged up out of the ravine into this village. And progressively cleared it of mock insurgents. There was a lot of shooting, there was a lot of confusion, there was a lot of loud Nigerian shouting, advance, advance. And then there was this kind of totally discordant set of accents that were also thrown in, which were these strong Scottish accents. 
suddenly you hear this Glaswegian saying, Ibrahim, you're dead. And that's because the training unit from the British Army is the one Scots battalion, a Scottish battalion. You, you mentioned that the security situation in the Sahel has been deteriorating. By how much? What's really alarming is in these countries in the Sahel, the number of people being killed has been doubling every year for the past three years. So last year it reached about 1,000. Now that is set against a much bigger number of about 10,000 killed across Africa in conflict involving jihadists. But this kind of exponential doubling every year is really alarming. And what's also alarming is the impact it's having on society. So if one looks again at Burkina Faso, hundreds if not thousands of schools are closed, throwing untold numbers of kids out on the street. And that is because the jihadists have been coming in and saying to the teachers, you're teaching Western secular education. If you carry on, we'll kill you. So the teachers are just not turning up for work. The schools are closing. That is particularly alarming because we know that one of the best inoculators against jihadist ideology is, in fact, a good education, both secular and religious. So the fact that schools are being targeted is not coincidental. The jihadists know what they're doing. And it's not just in the Sahel that we're seeing this deterioration. In Nigeria, where there is Boko Haram, everyone knows about them because they kidnap schoolgirls, one is also seeing this major increase in the number of attacks they're doing, and more importantly, the sophistication of their attacks. They're overrunning big Nigerian army bases at the moment. And and the Western forces that you've spoken to, what are they saying about this increase in, in violence? One of the people that I spoke with is General Mark Hicks, who heads U.S. Special Forces in Africa. And, and will remain a long-term security challenge for this region, and it will remain a regional security challenge that respects no borders or and takes advantage of poorly governed space and vulnerable populations. When he looks at the overall situation, he sees some positive movement in places like Somalia. But a lot of his focus right now is on West Africa and the Sahel. And this idea that if the spread of jihadism can't be contained there, it threatens to break out into very much bigger areas. And so Western governments then are are looking to sort of contain this before it becomes a kind of uncontainable problem? Yeah, so the battle against Islamic State in Syria is basically won. The worry is now whether Africa's ungoverned spaces, in particular the Sahel, are going to be the new front of terrorism. One senior Western European intelligence official said to me, if we aren't fighting jihadists in Africa, we're going to end up fighting them on the streets of Paris and Madrid. So there's a real worry about terrorists coming back. There's also a much bigger worry about destabilizing already fragile states and having another wave of migration coming across the Mediterranean. And you can see the commitment in Europe reflected in troop numbers. Unfortunately, it comes at a time of growing isolationism in the US and the Trump administration having called for about a 10% cut in the US commitment. You, You mentioned insurgent groups, as in different ones with different ideologies? Yeah, so what you've got is the two big strands of jihadism, and that's the sort of Islamic state-aligned guys who have been trying to create a caliphate, and actually we're beginning to see bits of that happening in northeastern Nigeria. They're kind of running a state. They're taxing people. They're beginning to provide services. A lot of people see them as providing more security frankly, than the government's own security forces. This is like the story we heard in Syria then. Yeah, it's very similar. The other bunch are the sort of more Al-Qaeda-aligned guys who, in many cases, are sort of more threatening to the West. They are not trying to build a caliphate, but they are certainly conducting big and complex attacks against both domestic government institutions as well as anything that's seen as a Western target. And they are themselves aligned? No, they are not. There are fairly big ideological splits between the two, fairly big differences in tactics and strategy. So why has the security situation been getting worse? 
There are a couple of things happening. The one is just in the bombing that ousted Gaddafi in Libya, you saw all of his armories opening up and weapons just flooding down into Mali and the Sahel. And then in 2012, you had this uprising of jihadists in Mali who almost took over the country, if but for the French. And for the past few years, they've been steadily drifting out and crossing borders. But you've also got some longer running threads that are happening here. The one is that you've got a bit of ethnic tension between the various groups and the jihadists are good at exploiting those. The other is that you've got climate change. You know, the Sahel is a fragile region, very poor at the best of times. And as it's drying up, people are being forced out of their traditional pastoral grazing grounds and going south with their animals. And that's also putting them into conflict with settled farmers. And with all of these factors making things worse, do you think that training up these African forces and bringing in these Western trainers and so on can really counter the insurgency or, or is it fighting a rising tide? It's a question that raises huge debate and huge conflict. I mean, the one is just, is it effective? And, and frankly, no one quite knows whether even spending millions of dollars every year training local forces is enough. But there's also a concern that in many of these countries that are not very democratic, we've got Western taxpayers paying for highly skilled Western forces to go in and train up the local elites who are effectively becoming a kind of praetorian guard. You know, they're either going to protect presidents who are not democratic or potentially become the nucleus of future coups. And then finally, there is just a question of kind of blood on the hands of the West, that some of these countries are really not respecting human rights. And there are real questions, again, about how Western taxpayers feel, or Western voters feel about supporting military units with training when those same military units may in fact be abusing civilians. This is real world pragmatism. Does it work and is it doing good? And perhaps we'll only know those answers in 10 or 15 years. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. James Tozer is a data journalist at The Economist. People are thinking a lot about climate change at the moment. He's been looking at how much Americans worry, or don't, about the environment. There's the Green New Deal, which is being proposed by some Democrats, which has attracted a lot of media attention. There's been a lot of talk about this Green New Deal. The Democrats' Green New Deal. Controversial Green New Deal. There seems to be increasingly wild weather. There have been a spate of deadly wildfires in California and hurricanes. Firefighters battle some of the worst wildfires in California's history. It has burned more than 75,000 acres. Harvey brought with it winds of 130 miles per hour. The strongest hurricane in the U.S. to hit in more than a decade. That's reflected in public awareness. Nearly two-thirds of Americans have heard about the Green New Deal one way or another. And there has also been a new poll out from Gallup, which shows that 44% of Americans now worry a great deal about climate change, which is one of the highest readings they've ever seen on that question. And Americans have been Googling climate change at global warming more often than they have at any point in the last 10 years. So happy news that everyone is finally concentrating on, on this enormously important issue. Well, yes, some happy news. But if you look at it, a longer term trend, it's slightly more depressing because unfortunately, it's not really a continual trend of growth. American awareness and concerns about climate change seem to go in cycles. We're at a peak now of, of worry of 44% of Americans worrying about climate change, but that's actually not much higher than previous peaks in 2007, where about 41% of them did, and in 2000, where 40% of them did. So what seems to happen is we have ebbs and flows. At some points, they're very worried, and at other times, they seem to forget about it altogether. I mean, what, what drives that cycle? If you, if you scare the crap out of them once, does that not stick with them? Well, what seems to happen is there are very high-profile public debates. So the, the one in 2000 seems to have followed the Kyoto Protocol, where there was a debate between Republicans and Democrats about whether America should sign up to global emissions targets. 
But that seemed to fall away after 9-11 and concerns about foreign policy. Then the second spike that we see in 2006, 2007 is around the time that Al Gore's documentary An Inconvenient Truth came out. And we also see a massive spike in Google searches for global warming around that point. But then shortly afterwards was the global financial crisis and all of that attention seems to have ebbed away. So it seems people can get on board but then simply become distracted by the next story coming down the pipe. Yeah, absolutely. Unless this is sort of constantly in the public eye, people start to worry about other things. You know, Their wallets or the threat of terrorism seems more immediate to them than the ice caps melting. And so that's perhaps one of the concerns about what will happen this time is, you know, the Green New Deal and these wildfires and hurricanes are, are briefly putting this back in the public eye, but it, it might fade again unless there's a concerted effort to keep it. But it seems clear that these kinds of extreme weather events are, are going to continue. We will have more intense hurricanes, we'll have more flooding events, we'll have more widespread wildfires. Surely that will keep things in, in, in the public eye, keep things uh, the forefront of people's attention. Absolutely. I think if, certainly with the fires, if the intensity of those continues at the current rate, we've had all sorts of records in terms of fatalities, area burned in the last couple of years. If that continues, I think that will keep this at the forefront of public attention. And I think that we could see an end to this cycle of, of up and down in terms of climate awareness. James, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.